Welcome to episode number 82 of the Marine Layer podcast. We welcome on Mariners reliever Ty Adcock, an awesome conversation about his career, switching from a catcher to a pitcher in college, and his longtime friendship with Mariners arm George Kirby. We'll also discuss some Josh Naylor Mariners rumors that surfaced at winter meetings that are very interesting and something that Lau and I need to discuss. Before we start the show, here's your reminder to download our episodes, leave us a five-star review, and follow the show if you're listening on the audio side of the plat- of the podcast. You can do that wherever you get your podcast. Download, five-star review, follow the show. It helps us out a bunch. You know what else helps us out? If you like, comment, subscribe on YouTube too, because our full video podcast is over there. Make sure to check us out, and then go follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube shorts at Marine Layer Pod. Let's get it rolling. And we welcome you to this episode of the Marine Layer Podcast, part of the Just Baseball Podcast Network, recording here on Tuesday evening, December 12th. The winter meetings are over. The Mariners have left empty-handed, and Jeff Passan dragged the Mariners again today. I mean, it sounds like the trifecta. Who else needs to hear it at this point if you're ownership? Or I should say, who else do you need to hear it from? I'm sure Jeff Passan is not the person that puts it over the top in terms of them saying, oh, we should hold a press conference and be held accountable and we should actually go spend in free agency. But I'm just saying, you've heard it from players, you've heard it from fans, you've heard it from local media. Ryan Divish just wrote another awesome article a couple days ago. You've heard it from national media. I don't know who else you have to hear it from to actually wake up and say, okay, maybe we should actually act on this and start getting aggressive this winter in free agency. Lyle and I are going to do our best to be the shining light through this darkness because what Jeff Passan said today was was <laughs> was quite depressing. You can go listen to it, uh, friend of the pod, both two friends of the pod, Brock Heward and Mike Salk. Uh, he was on with them today on Seattle Sports. It's a really good conversation that we can't really do diligence talking about it here on this podcast. But it, it he didn't exactly paint a rosy picture. So Lyle, it's it is our job now to bring everyone's hopes back up, like come back up with us. It's gonna, it's gonna be okay because you have us. We do like being the positive side of the Mariners world because man, there is a lot of negativity out there and not that we're not that we've done none of it, but we do in general, try to be the positive side. Here's my last thing before we actually jump into the show today regarding all the negative Mariners talk from passing and everybody else. I've tried to think about what it would take for ownership to really be rattled awake and say, okay, let's change our thinking here. If Julio were to come out on social media with a statement saying, this is unacceptable, figure it out, this is not the team I signed up to play for, would that finally wake ownership up? Maybe Cal didn't, maybe JP didn't, maybe national media didn't. If Julio came out and said that, would it change anything? I don't think so. Nope. That would... If uh, that would require ownership thinking Julio is above them, which I, I just don't think that's how most owners think. Like, is there a situation in any league besides the NBA where that works? Any single league? I like, I don't think so. I feel like if Tom Brady or Patrick Mahomes at some point in their career were to speak out and say something like that, I feel like that would kind of ring some bells up at the top. Now, they were never on teams where that was an issue or have been an issue for Mahomes' case. But I do think it would 
I think it would flip a light switch on. I'm not saying it would do with the Mariners ownership group. They may just not care. And and that's been very true over the course of since they took over these reins. But I'm just saying that's the closest thing I can think of to having them really being rattled awake and saying, OK, let's let's do something about this. I, I'm just going to go back to what Mike Salk said. And I thought he just said it so perfectly a week ago last Tuesday. He said, who else needs to say it? Right. Like everyone possible has said what is needed to be said. Not the face of the franchise. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, not the face of the franchise, not the face of the franchise, but pretty much everyone else has said what's needed to be said. So if all these people have already said it, then, you know, eventually either you listen or you don't. And it seems like at this point, uh, they're not going to listen. I do have. Speaking of not spending, this would probably be a not spending, what we'll lead this podcast episode off with. But Josh Naylor, some rumors came out about Josh Naylor out of the winter meetings, and it was reported by Paul Hoynes of the Cleveland Plain Dealer that the Cubs, Mariners, and Pirates uh, drew were interested in Josh Naylor, and there were some rumors floating around about the Guardians' first baseman. He's only projected to make $7 million this year. He's got two years before he's a free agent. The Guardians almost never sign their guys to long-term extensions, even if they're young, controllable, and have a high amount of upside outside of Jose Ramirez, who they have signed. So, Lyle, I'm going to bring this around to you. Is Josh Naylor a good fit with the Mariners? He is. I like the player. I like the profile. I think the last two years he's been really good. The problem is, tying this all back into spending, are there not guys on the market who could put up similar production to Josh Naylor and you wouldn't have to give up something valuable? Because he would cost something valuable in a trade. I'm sure there are. And we could make that case for most guys. It's like trading for the Rays guys. I think Naylor's a step below the Rays guys. If you were to trade for a Rosarena or Paredes, I think that's a step up. And I think those guys are probably a little better than Naylor in terms of making true impact. but. It is the same idea that you'd have to give up something valuable and you would have to part with either a high-end prospect or a young starting pitcher, maybe both, for those Rays guys. For Naylor, it'd probably be a little bit less. I bet you it would be some prospect or two within your top 10. I don't think it would cost one of the young arms to get them, but it would cost a prospect that people value. And that is more to give up than it would be if you were going to just go and spend money on somebody. I'm sure there would. And you are speaking very logically. You are really. I'm I'm going to give you a round of applause. The logic coming out of your mouth right now, it, it just it is music to my ears. I mean, why don't you just spend money? The problem is, Lyle, why won't they spend money? They're cheap. There we go. <laughs> there we go. So the option is Josh Naylor, if there's interest there, which, again, this makes sense. He, It's not like he costs nothing. He would cost $7 million on top of what they would give up. If it's a prospect, you're trading essentially no salary for $7.2 million, which is about the number, and he get a little bit more expensive, a little bit over $10 million next season in his final year before free agency, I would imagine. But I, this isn't something Mitch Garver couldn't already repeat, I would say, especially if the Mariners feel like they want to buy into Ty France at driveline. It's like, okay, we see all these videos of Ty France at driveline. He looks great. We're confident Ty's going to have a good 2024 season. In fact, given our financial resources, Ty France has to have a really good 2024 season. So we're going to need him at first base. However, Josh Naylor could still occupy the DH spot and be good. 
The problem is you could sign Mitch Garver for a very fair amount, and he could, if he's healthy, put up the same production in that DH role. So that's where I see where you're coming from with that, that there are definitely options there for Josh Naylor for you not to give up the prospect and instead fill that DH role with somebody else that is maybe a little bit more pricey, but works out just the same. Okay, now I'm going to play devil's advocate to you. The flip side of signing Mitch Garver versus trading for Josh Naylor is Naylor is on the field a bit more than Garver is. And Naylor actually plays some pretty good first base defense. So with this idea, you could flip Naylor and tie between first base and DH. Neither of them have to work their tails off playing the field 162 games. They could split it. Naylor was in the 88th percentile and outs above average this past year. So he can play some good first base defense. And both those guys, if Ty gets back to the guy he once was, can hit and and can hit for some authority. So if it is really going to come through trades, what have we said? If they left Dom Canzone alone in left field, but filled the other three spots, third base, outfield, DH, we'd be okay with it. I would kind of hate to see it have to be three trades because that means you're giving some valuable pieces out. You're, you're getting some valuable pieces out of your organization. But just in terms of on-field big league production in 24, if you were going to get Josh Naylor, if you were going to get Isak Paredes, and you were going to get Randy Rosarena, that is a massive upgrade. And Josh Naylor is a really good hitter. The last two years, he's been a very good hitter. So it would be nice if they just signed some guys. But with the cards they've been dealt, maybe it would have to look something like that. Which, by the way, they trade for those three guys. That's $18 million under the, under the payroll budget. Hmm. And I like you slip the the cards you've been dealt there in there. That was that was nice. Yeah, I'll give yeah, you credit yeah. for that. I'll give you props for that. I'll say one other option who's uh, on the field that you could sign. We've we've definitely talked about him, but a certain someone was spotted working out in the very same shirt I do own with Ken Griffey Jr. blowing a uh, a, a gum bubble, uh, working out, getting ready for the season. Just you know, coincidence. His old his hitting coach is now a, a Mariners hitting coach. You know, just just. Just coincidence, just, just just similar things. For those that are not as active on social media as we are, would you like to fill everybody in on who this is? Yeah, so Jorge Soler had a Ken Griffey Jr. shirt working out yesterday. As at time of recording, yes, when this comes yeah. out Monday. Yeah. So that was nice to see. I did like that. It's a good choice of shirt, I will say. One of my favorite shirts. I'm surprised I don't own one, to be honest. They're like the sickest shirts. I know Ty France owns one. A bunch of guys own one because why? They're super cool. You own one. Yeah, exactly. What would puzzle me about a trade like this is that I, this doesn't really make sense from the Guardian side. Like, they can't hit, first of all. They are a crummy hitting team. Second of all, Josh Naylor was their best bat last year. You might think, well, TJ, Jose Ramirez. No, like, Josh Naylor was the best hitter on the on the Guardians last year. It was not Jose Ramirez. And the way it usually works out in Cleveland... Again, outside of Jose Ramirez, once these guys once these guys get to one year before their free agency, they will get traded. For example, Shane Bieber is one year away from free agency right now. He'll probably get traded this offseason because they just they could not afford the rates that these starting pitchers are going to go for or these everyday players are going to go for. Josh Naylor might not be all that expensive since he's only a first baseman. But this gives if he does get traded, I mean, that would be the reason why, because I, I couldn't think of any other reason why the Guardians would want to trade their best hitter off a roster that already struggles a ton. So that might lead that leads me to think that the Mariners would have to overpay to actually make this happen. And if they did have to overpay, I would probably lean away from this. 
I'm with you on that. I, I like the player. He would certainly help. Again, I just hate the idea of having to make your team better strictly through trades all offseason. That's that's where our gripe is. Although, if you want to just dive in on Josh Naylor, the player, a little bit, you're talking about a guy who's hit 37 bombs in the last two years. He had a 128 WRC plus in 23. He had a 119 WRC plus in 22. So he's been well above league average at the plate the last two seasons. His OPS has been well over 800 the last two seasons. And he doesn't strike out much. He doesn't walk a whole ton, but he's striking out less than 14% of the time. And what do the Mariners want? They want guys that are not going to strike out. Josh Naylor will not strike out. He's a he's a big chase guy. He's going to swing at a lot a lot of pitches, and he's going to make contact with a lot of them as well. I'm he's not the biggest power profile guy. He has decent exit velocities. He's had decent expected slugging numbers, expected batting average, quality of contact, etc. But it's not really the volume of power you want from a first baseman. He's honestly kind of similar to Ty France at first base with maybe a slightly better power profile and maybe a little bit better of an athlete profile as well. But they're actually shockingly similar, if if I'm going to lie, which if you were to have them both on this roster is a very, I would say, interesting philosophical fit. But, you know, Ty France is a contact over power first baseman and Josh Naylor is a contact over power first baseman. And then all of a sudden you think, OK, well, we're trying to frame our roster as contact over power. So this actually might work out a little bit better than you would think. And like you said, Josh Naylor will chase some pitches out of the zone. But it doesn't result in strikeouts. Now, it may result in some weak pop-outs. It may result in some weak ground-outs. But he doesn't strike out. And above all that, he is a very good hitter. He's not He's not going to blow you out of the water with his war. He's about a two to two and a half win player on a yearly basis. But he would help this team. And again, if you switch him and Ty France off every night between DH and first base, it's not the worst solution in the world. Because Naylor has a track record of being a good hitter. So you have to at least like that. Yeah, you do have to at least like that. I so this probably means you send Locklear back. I would guess. Mm-hmm. Like you're not you're not going to carry Locklear in the minor leagues, and then two these two guys in the big leagues with Ty France and Josh Naylor. That would probably be who goes back, and then maybe the 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 prospect on top of that. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna take a swing at what this would cost. So really, it's up to the person whether or not they'd be willing to part with some of those pieces to get better for two seasons. I mean, it's not promised. They'd want to sign him long-term. I would imagine if you want to do this trade, you would sort of have an idea already if you'd want to sign Josh Naylor long-term. But according to some of our comments today, they should avoid it because Josh Naylor is, quote, a brat. So (laughs) we got to take that into consideration. Well, take this into consideration too. One upside to Paul Sewald no longer being on the team. Josh Naylor is not going to walk into spring training on the in the middle of February, first day position players have to report and get into a fight in the clubhouse because Paul Seawald rocked the baby at him last year at the end of the game. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I do remember that. So maybe he'll have to save it for they when they play the Diamondbacks. <laughs> Man, that would be something. I wonder whose side people would take in that scenario because even though Paul Seawald would be on the other team, hypothetically, he's still super close friends with a bunch of guys on the Mariners. So hmm. that would be... That Maybe dep- depends if they like the trade or not. If they thought it was a cheap out, then I think they might side with Seawald. <laughs> <laughs> players just start fighting their own guy in defense of Paul Seawald. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh. man. I That would be something. I mean, I, I thought it was hilarious when he rocked the baby in the postseason a couple years ago. But 
yeah i, I mean I, I, I don't i didn't realize his reputation was so low i mean we posted our it's show or uh, we posted our, our reaction video to this rumor today on our social media channels and i was kind of shocked the amount of responses i got were like no he's toxic nope he's an ass no please don't don't trade for him he's 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 bad he's bad to have in your clubhouse i'm like really like he rocked the baby once it was more he did it a few times. It's kind of his thing now. And in fact, I'm sure if he was in Seattle, you'd probably see it a few times here. But no, I don't think he is a clubhouse problem by any stretch. Are you shocked that a bunch of people on social media who just spew negativity say, no, I don't want him. Oh, he's toxic. Like, what do you expect? Sunshine and roses in our comment sections? That's true. I will give us credit, Lyle. We're we're a little bit over a full year. We're we're over a full year into this thing, and at first we really didn't have many comments at all. We were we were starting to grow. We were doing our best to churn out content and get some reaction. And now that we have all the reaction, I mean, man, you do see as much as you feel like we've thought out a concise, well thought out take using logic, using numbers using whatever else you want to consider with that. We put it out, and people still manage to come out of the woodwork. I will give you people credit that you exist. I mean, man, credit to you guys for finding your own path in this life where you are free to think what you want, and you sure do. And we really appreciate all the people from all the different paths who come along with us. It is great. Okay, we've got an awesome conversation with Ty Adcock coming up, but before that, Quick words from our friends over at Pagacha's Pub 85. Pagacha's Pub 85 in Kirkland. It's our favorite spot to go hang out, watch some games, eat some great food, have some drinks, hang out with our friends. It's in Kirkland. It's just east of 405. And if you head over there during happy hour, you can get some great deals. What are they? Happy hours are Monday through Friday, 2 to 6 p.m. It features $3 domestic beers, $4 Manny's Blue Moons, $4 Mac and Jacks, $4 Wells and $4 house wines. Also, this is not a happy hour special, but like we always talk about, some great pizza as well. So if you want to eat some great food, hang out with your friends, watch some games, go over to Pagacha's Pub 85 in Kirkland and go check it out. I'm really looking forward to this Ty Adcock conversation. He was awesome. Yeah, he really was awesome. I got to say, I I mentioned this to you after the conversation with Ty, that it's not... Like when you talk to professional athletes, like you've realized this, you're at the field way more often than I do, but like even college athletes too, the more experience you get, you get a little guarded. And for good reason, you talk to the media a lot. You have a lot of people wanting to know your stuff. And a lot of these guys just want to be able to live their lives and play the game and not really worry too much else. And you realize that opening your mouth too much sometimes will get you in trouble. I mean, it will, but what the side what we got get to see from Ty Adcock in this interview it's it is just fantastic it is so rare that a professional athlete will be this open about a lot of things with us and i mean we greatly appreciate everything ty brought to it but i'll just say it just adds that extra layer of getting to see see the side of an athlete that you don't normally get to see because usually in a general media setting they're so guarded and ty was anything but in this interview and it made it that much better If you don't like listening to TJ and I's voices, well, then you're in luck for this interview because Ty, he loved to talk, which is awesome because the more you can get out of an athlete like TJ was talking about, the better the conversation is. And Ty did not hold back to tell his story, to really go into detail about it. And I think you guys are just going to learn that much more about him. And much like us, after concluding the interview, 
I think it's going to be pretty hard not to root for the guy to get back into the bullpen in 2024 and absolutely thrive. We're certainly rooting for it. And hopefully after listening to this, you guys will too. I think there are going to be a lot of people who are happy to not hear us talk. I'll say that, Lyle. <laughs> okay, let's get to our interview now with Mariners reliever Ty Adcock. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right, we've got Mariners reliever Ty Adcock on with us. I was scrolling through your Twitter a little bit before we hopped on with you, and I never noticed this during the year, but I noticed it, well, today. When you guys were in San Francisco, you're sitting out in the bullpen, and somebody got you on camera, like twirling up your Raleigh Fingers type of mustache. But my first question is, were you mirroring the Raleigh Fingers thing? Like, was that the idea? A little bit. Um, I have a tendency to let my beard just kind of go crazy, and I, I don't shave it for a while. Like, especially with my hair, too. Like, I'll grow my hair out super long, and then just out of nowhere, I'll, I'll give a, a really clean cut. Um, same thing with my beard. It got to a point, I, th- I think I hadn't shaved it all season. I was just letting it letting it go. And then I started twirling it up once I got called up. And yeah, that day I was like, I'm really going to try and curl these up. And, and it worked out. I got a little bit of TV time and they put it on me. But yeah, like a little Raleigh Fingers inspiration. <laughs> Is there any sort of clubhouse competition with facial hair? I know a lot of people had had a, had a good lettuce of hair on on the top of their head. What about what about facial hair wise? I wouldn't say within the clubhouse, but I think in the game of baseball, you're trying to, you know, if you got good hair, you got to let it let it show. And especially mm-hmm. since you're not working a normal day job or anything where you got to be super presentable, you can do a bunch of different designs and uh, wild cuts that you've never done before like the year before last year i had done like a and my hair was really long i did like a mullet almost like a tapered mullet and then with the beard and everything i've done the mustache a couple times like just strictly mustache but yeah i think you're just always trying to keep people on their toes and like if, if you got good good beard good hair uh clean it up or just let it let it grow like crazy like i do sometimes <laughs> Like I, I'm literally contemplating right now. Do I, do I grow my hair out for the season or do I leave it right now? So I'm kind of back and forth on what I should do. (laughs) Okay. Two things off of that. First thing, you don't have to look totally presentable, at least facial hair wise and and hair wise, unless you're a Yankee. So Ty, just, 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 just keep that in mind. I mean, they, they, they value that very, very seriously. Second, is there a current inspiration for facial hair in Major League Baseball that you want to aspire to? I don't think it's one particular person, but all of the, I guess you could say, relievers that have great beards. I wanted to, I've always wanted a beard my whole life, and I never, I never started growing one until I was literally twenty-two or three. Like it came on so late, but I just, I let it. I trusted it and I would just let it grow in the weird stages. I would shave it down, restart the process. It'd be like months. And then eventually I got to this point. And then when I get a good thick beard, I just, I just want to let it keep going and thicken out. But like, I mean, the Brian Wilson 
I mean, that's that's a good inspiration. Archie Bradley's got a good one. Like that's a clean clean cut. Um, trying to think of some other other good beards. Um, Maybe like an Ike Davis. You remember him? He had a, he had a long one. <laughs> See, I don't I don't like it super long. I like I like it thick through here, the bottom, and then like a nice tapered up 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 towards the uh, the sideburns. Um, but yeah, like real thick and clean cut, like and and with like a good fade. It kind of it complements the beard a lot better if you have the fade. My first thought was Brandon Marsh of the Phillies, but now that you say you don't like the really long beard, you, I mean, give it a little more time with you, and and maybe you've got a little bit of Brian Wilson in you because like at at yeah. length right now, that's kind of what it's looking like. Yeah, I, I don't know if I could ever get to uh, who'd you just say for the Phillies? Brandon Marsh, the outfielder. Yeah, his is like extreme, and his hair like he does the yes. routine. He, he wets his hair before the game. It just looks, mm-hmm. it just looks gritty. That's what he is. He's yeah. just when he gets on the field, but no, I wouldn't get to that point. I would, I would probably do Brian Wilson be the most. I'd let this get real thick to about down here, and then shave up this the top. Is it a norm to like show up to spring training clean cut, or, or does it not matter? Like you said, unless you're the Yankees, I don't think it matters. Okay, so I, I just feel like you start the season fresh and. And then you let it go from there. And like, so you show up presentable. It's like showing up to the first day of school, right? You want to look your best. You want to wear your best clothes on the first day of school. You have a nice, nice haircut you got the weekend before. And, you know, yeah. whatever happens, happens over the course of uh, of the school year. And I would imagine the, the same thing in some courses happened for uh, Major League Baseball. But it sounds like it's only probably for some people. Yeah, I think it, I think this year, like, I'll show up with a pretty good cut, whatever it may be. I want to maybe be cleaned up a little bit, but last year or the year before I look, I showed up like an absolute caveman. I had hair down to my, to my shoulders and the beard hadn't been shaved in probably months. It What's was, better to pitch in? It was a bad look, but uh, what? better to pitch in. See, that's the, that's the dilemma. If I'm pitching and I want to go for best look, I'm thinking like hair out the hat. Cause like as ball players hair out the hat is like the thing that's what you want to have but when i had the last year when i had the hair out the hat and then this was cleaned up this was nice because when this gets in the awkward stage it just kind of sticks out you have to get it long enough to push it behind the ears and when i cut that i didn't have to worry about it so it was like the best of both worlds you have short on the side and you have the the flared out hair so i might i might try to go back to that i kind of like that but it's you a long- and George Kirby, oh, I was going to say, you and George Kirby are good friends and, and have been good friends for a while, which I'm sure we'll get into with you a little bit. But would he ever grow facial hair like you? I don't think he's got it. Like, I, I've i been around him, and I don't think he can grow it that well. I think it's just one of those types of people that the hair just doesn't grow. And people, some people are like that, and that's just how it is. Even if, like, he did, like, just, I think, truly tried to let it grow, it would be... It wouldn't be thick. It would be like whiskery and it just, it'd, it'd be better off for him to just shave it. I think that's his situation. <clears throat> well, if we're going to get into you and George Kirby's friendship a little bit, I, mean, I guess we can take you all the way back to your guys' time at Elon where you guys played your college ball together. Like, When did that friendship kind of start between the two of you? I'll be honest. It started later than you might think. It was, 
it was the year, my senior year, his junior year, his, his first draft year, my second draft year. Um, when I actually started to have a chance of getting drafted, we started chatting it up a little bit more, but you know, we were always sharing the field together, you know, sharing, uh, get togethers together and all that. But he, he had a little bit of a different friend group than me in college. Um, but then, like I said, that year, that, that draft year for us, we started chit-chatting a little bit on the field a little bit more, talking about the draft coming up. And uh, we, we joked around a little bit, like how funny would it be if we both went to the same team? Just, you know, didn't think anything of it. And then I remember draft day, we knew he was going first round sometime, and it happened to be with the Mariners. And we were, you know, su- super happy for him. And then second day came, that's when I was – uh, expected to go and you get so wrapped up in just the stress of draft day and wanting the best for yourself and you want to go on this this round this number whatever it may be so I was so wrapped up into that I get drafted after all the chaos and I get all the calls from scouting director and whoever it was that day and we're starting to think we settle down a little bit and we're like wait a minute like like George Kirby, he's with the Mariners too. So it was like the, the the conversation we had previously about having already having one guy within the org that you know that that helps you out a ton. Just because you're so you're not that lone wolf going into spring training the first time, and you're kind of just roaming roaming the halls and not knowing where you're supposed to be. Uh, it was really nice having him, like a former teammate going into our first spring training together. So it was really nice. Did So you were a two-way player at Elon. You you came into there as a catcher, and then you played a little bit of outfield as you got older, as you got into pitching as well, all things we want to touch on. But, I mean, just off the rip, did you have you, did you ever catch George Kirby? Yes. Wow. I, How, so what was that experience like? It was It was great to be able to see him – come into Elon as the slightly immature, um, you know, 18-year-old where he was good, but everybody needs a little bit of polishing up when they get to college. And one, catching him, he was he was good. He was already above most other other recruits that came in. But it was fun catching him because he, like, just like he is now, he had pretty good command. And as a catcher, you always want someone that throws pretty hard and has good command. And it's a lot of fun just receiving guys that can do that when they can spot up. That way you can be a little bit more relaxed as a catcher and you're you're framing the pitches without any effort. But I'll tell I tell everybody that asked me about George at Elon how far he's come <clears throat> mentally with maturing his composure on the mound, it's night and day. Like he freshman and sophomore year when he would, and this is everybody in college, but it's funny to see someone grow so much from college to big league Kirby. Now what, who he is, he would get so worked up over like the little small things on the mound that didn't go his way. Say a strike on the outside corner was called a ball. He would show his emotions immediately. Um, maybe a guy boots a ground ball and, you know, he wanted that out, he might show his emotions a little too much or <clears throat> whatever it may be. He would just, he would wear everything on his shoulder or just 
just right there. And compared to now, like he's a, he's a cold blooded assassin on the mound. And like he shows emotion here and there when he does, when he does really well, or he's like, he's in a, he's in a tight spot. He needs to get out of it. He'll show that emotion. But other than that, like he's, he's cold blooded. He knows what he's doing up there. And it's not like it's some special strikeout, um, that he's going to get all worked up about. It's just another day for him now in the big leagues. It's like, I, I'm, I'm born to do this and I'm going to go out there and get outs. But at Elon, it was, it was a big, big shift because to, towards the, his junior year, his draft year, like he made a big jump sophomore year to junior year. It was like on the mental side and the physical side, he went from like low nineties touching mid nineties to first round George Kirby uh, mid nineties touching like 98, 99. It was like, yo, this guy is about to go like first round, no doubt. And as a mid major school, Elon, like we would always be chatting it up. The players would be like, yo, how did we get George Kirby? Like, how did this man sign to go to Elon university in North Carolina, mid major school. And it just happened to be one of those, I wouldn't say diamond in the rough, but like he, he kind of progressed and developed into this, power pitcher this power starter that doesn't walk anybody he has four plus pitches and you know he goes first round just like that so it was a lot of fun to see him evolve as a pitcher on both sides of the ball <clears throat> and what I'm getting at here because you said when you would catch him that he always had a lot of command and then he developed over time what I'm getting at here is his freshman year in a bullpen session he'd throw about three balls a session and then junior year he'd throw one ball a session that's about right. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was a lot of fun and like catching him freshman year, sophomore year, I, I slowly shifted the outfield because we had other, other recruits that came in were strictly catchers and they did, they weren't as uh, versatile as I was. I was a little bit more athletic. I could, I could bounce around. I could play outfield or wherever they needed me. And, uh, but for the time being, when I did catch him, it was a lot of fun. How did you end up starting to pitch, by the way? Because, again, like you came into college as a catcher, as a hit, like a position player, played some outfield. But then clearly one day somebody said, yeah, hey, Ty, you want to get up on the mound. So how did that happen? Yep. So that story starts with Sean McGrath, who was, if you don't know, when we got drafted, he was our pitching coach at Elon. Mm -hmm. And when we we both got drafted, he picked up a job with the Mariners. So he was, uh, he was a Mariners, a uh, minor league pitching coach two years. I'm pretty sure he started out with high a Everett the first year. And then the second year he was with the Arkansas travelers. I think he's, he was only there for two years. Now he's a, uh, he's at Iowa right now. He picked up a job at Iowa, but one day in practice, um, this is when I'm playing majority outfield. I like I'm I'm throwing down the home plate from or to third base from the outfield and like this is the time where you can really get on the ball and let you know let it let it show what you got. <clears throat> he asked me, I think it was in the fall, because some of the freshmen that came in didn't pan out and they weren't throwing a ton of strikes, like and they weren't gonna be super reliable going into the season. So he 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 looked around to find a couple position players that could try and eat up some innings for us. And I was one of those guys, and we we had, I think, two other guys that did that. And that was junior year, 
I started pitching first bullpen. It was like 90, 91. And he was like, yep. He's like, yep, you're going to, you're going to throw some innings for us. And I'm like, all right, that'll work. <laughs> but like, I wasn't super excited about pitching like that. I, I, position players, you ask any position player, they're like, yeah, like I'd love to pitch. It'd be so fun. But then once you actually be- become a pitcher, you're like, oh crap, this is serious. I got to actually take on the role of being a pitcher, be responsible for like any kind of arm care or throwing program you got to uh, take care of. It's a, it's a lot of work, especially if you're a two-way player. And so I did that. Um, I threw, I threw in 13 innings, 13 innings my junior year. The last four innings or so, the last four games that I threw, my velo just started to go way up because I, I went from first bullpen. I was a slide step. Like I think I was like a 0.9 to home plate, like super quick. And I wasn't using a ton of my lower half or anything. And by, by the end of the season, I was slowly becoming this new pitcher that was utilizing my lower half and learning how to rotate really, really well and generate some arm speed. And, I went up to like 94, 95. There was one game I hit 97. And then I come into the the dugout and Sean, the pitching coach is like, he's like, you know what you just did? And I was like, what's up? He's like, yeah, you just, you just hit 97. And I'm like, that's pretty good. Like, it's kind of bizarre to think about, but you know, I just went out there every time I was like, how hard can I try and throw this ball? And it wasn't, I didn't have any nasty secondary pitches. It was just, try to throw strikes and try to throw it hard. And then the next, so that happened. Crazy story. That was like um, less than a month from the draft on that year, junior year. I'm getting letters from, I think the A's were there, the Braves were there, and the Rangers were at. It was playing against UNCG. I remember it like it was yesterday. They're handing me uh, letters, draft letters, right after the game. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, this is <laughs> happening way too fast. Like, I went from being uh, some mediocre hitter or outfielder that like, is, like, kind of struggling to get in the lineup here and there, and then I am possibly could get drafted this year. Like, it was a complete 180 of what I expected. And now I'm like, okay, like, this is happening too fast. I just got draft letters. There's like the, the drafts in three weeks. I don't have an agent. I don't have anything. Like I'm not prepared whatsoever. So leaned on my coaches a lot. And my head coach was like, all right, guys, slow down. Like he's not getting drafted this year. Like he's got another year. He's going to take this whole next year in summer to prepare and really, you know, hone in on being a true pitcher. And thankfully for that advice, and that guidance from one Sean and and Coach Kennedy that was um, the head coach there. He still is the head coach, but they were just like settle down to the to the scouts. He's gonna he's gonna take another year and he'll be ready to go next year and he'll be a way better version of what you've what you've just seen. So that's that's junior year. I take the whole summer. I go play in the NECBL league, uh, New England Collegiate Baseball League, and strictly pitcher. McGrath, the head pitching coach, he was like, listen, like, if you want to be a pitcher, you got to understand, you know, what it's like to be a pitcher. You got to, you have to go through sitting in the bullpen. You know, it's boring. You got to sit down there. You got to prepare 
on the fly when someone calls down because that's a big that's a big jump when you become a new pitcher, especially a reliever. You got to get hot really quick. You have to know, you know, what you need to warm up prior to throwing in the bullpen. What 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 checkpoints do we need to hit before I get on that mound and start throwing and not running any you know risk of injury or something like that. So I did the whole summer up there. I think I I don't remember how many innings I threw, but it was that helped a lot because summer ball is the closest thing you can get to minor league baseball. I think because of the, the the bus travels, the long travels, the the housing situations, and just the whole nine, everything about it is minor league baseball. Um, so I do that, have a good time, really buying into the whole pitch and roll. I come into the fall of my senior year. I'm ready to go. Uh, I'm still a two-way. I'm two-way all the way to senior year. Like, never stop being a two-way. And – uh, pro day. I don't know if you guys are familiar with pro day at all. That's yeah. The scouts come out and, um, we had George Kirby, which was uh projected first rounder. We had another guy that gets kind of slid under the radar, which is Kyle Bronovich. Mm-hmm. He was, he was probably higher touted than Kirby the year before, uh, Kirby got drafted because he had struck out like 146. I think he, was close to or beat, I think it was Verlander's record in college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, rem- I remember him. We So Lyle and I spent a little bit of time on the Cape, and I remember he was a name that people were like, floating around. I was like, oh, watch this dude when he pitches. I know George was there too, but yeah. I, I remember Burnovich like a little bit more as a name people were talking about. And so, yes, I do remember him. Yeah, he. they both went to Harwich. The, the, mm-hmm. I was in the NECBL. They were both in Harwich. I think that's correct. And then Burnovich. Yeah go play for team usa mm-hmm. like he pieced out and was like i'm going to usa and then kirby i think stayed with harwich he pitched up there but yeah we had kirby brunovich me who was uh what they called the unicorn no one really knew who they've heard of me but they didn't know who i was or what i was about and what i brought to the table and then we had a couple of other um hitters that were really good so we had like I think 45 to 50 scouts there, like cross checkers, national cross checkers. It was the whole, the whole deal. Like when I got up on pro day, it was, if you, if you knew what Elon stands like, it's smaller mid major and they filled up the whole middle section. It was just scouts. So like I get up on the mound, it's my time to throw every, every upperclassman gets their chance to throw as a pitcher. And I get up there and I'm like, Holy crap. Like this is, it's a lot of scouts up there. (laughs) And so I was just like, throw it as hard as you can over the plate. And I think I had some rinky dink slider at the point at that time. Like did it was not, it was not great at all because I didn't develop a harder slider until later in that year. But that, that pro day, I, I was so amped up. I was literally 96 to 99, 97, 99. I was like, where is this coming from? (laughs) It was just like it came out of nowhere because in the summer ball league, one, the mounds aren't great, so you can't generate a lot of, you know, momentum and great mechanics with the the, the divots you have. But like I never got above ninety five in like in summer ball league. And then I come into the fall, I don't know if I was just rejuvenated, had some time to you know, some downtime. I come in and yeah, just lighten up the radar gun and people are like, Who the hell is this guy? <laughs> 
and like had a had some people speak to me after the uh after i pitched and like never had that before it was kind of like the previous instance uh my junior year scouts coming up to me it was just it was happening so fast but i mean i was enjoying every minute of it because like since i was a kid all i wanted to do was get drafted go play pro baseball and i thought it was going to be catching as a switch hitter because that was my my me and my dad's whole like plan like because i was a little bit chubbier and slower it was like switch hitting catcher right that'll be easy ticket and then it was pitching pitching is what got me there but on the other end i had the best year hitting ever, like my whole four years there because i i completely stopped worrying so much about like hitting and getting worked up about striking out or trying to do too much when I'm in the box had the best year hitting ever. And like was on the verge of like, I got a couple of looks for hitting and to go to the pros, but I was, I just knew that one, I struck out too much and hitting in the pros is way more difficult than college way more. And I was like, I don't want to do that. So the results wouldn't suggest it, but were you a little overwhelmed by all the all the attention? Because I would imagine if if I'm going to place your uh, myself in your mind, tell me if I'm wrong. But you know, you're going through college, and until you get to your junior year, it's not like you're not for sure a pro. You, I, I don't think you're you're not at that point. But all of a sudden, in the span of what four months, you go from unheard of to scouts are like oh ty nice to meet you we'd love to have you and you're like whoa <laughs> yeah this is a this is a bit much it's awesome because like that's what you want but mm-hmm. yeah like i said within a span of uh yeah four months from the time i i i threw in that uncg game uh that was that was literally like the end of the season in my junior year and then yeah summer ball is like two two three months it might've been five or six months, but, uh, cause pro day is in November. And when that happened, you know, you're on the radar now. It's like Ty Cox, another guy we need to look at at Elon along with Bronovich, um, and Kirby. And then you have what's the, you have the winter meet, not the winter meetings. It's similar to that. They're, they're the meetings GM meetings. The what? GM meetings. No, Owners meetings. Uh, I, I messed that up. It's the meetings that you have with the the scouts during the down period in college. So mm-hmm. if you're like a prospect or someone that they kind of know is going to have a chance of getting drafted, you'll meet with a bunch of the different um, regional scouts. And if they're legit, like they'll have some cross checkers in there along in the meeting. So like, mm. Where I was, I had like 20, 25 to 26 meetings with a bunch of different teams while that's happening. And then, like you said, you go from not even thinking about getting drafted at all. So you're like, okay, where's my focus after baseball? Like, you know, what route am I going to take? Where do Mm -hmm. I want to, where do I want to work? What do I want to do? Do I want to go to grad school? Whatever it may be. And then this happens and I'm like, all right, let's, I can not slack off a little bit, but I can kind of 
scale it back a little bit on the on the schoolwork because I need to really focus in on on pitching and, and baseball so that I can get drafted as high as possible. So yeah, I did. It shifted. It completely shifted that uh, into my junior year, going into senior year as well. Um, yeah, it, it, you, you shifted your your mind from oh, I'm going to get drafted to before that it was, am I going to grad school or not? <laughs> what were you going to do? Did you know? Um, when I came into college, I didn't know what the heck I wanted to do, and I I knew I'm the kind of person that wants to stay around sports somehow. And I don't know what area it would have been in. Um, so I was like, I was contemplating uh, like maybe PT school, but that's three years and you got to take, you know, certain classes to get into that. I didn't, I hadn't taken all the required prerequisites to get into that. So like that would have been more classes I had to take. I was thinking maybe like personal trainer, coach. I mean, like coaching is a passion of mine, but some somewhere along the lines of just r- remaining within sports. And I do like the training aspect of uh, the sports as well. Like, uh, like I took my degree was in exercise science, but that was purely because I didn't want to take any other uh, classes to deal with like business or finance or whatever. I, 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 I'm a big fan of psychology though, like sports psychology. I do love that. When I, when I took some of those elective classes within my major, I did enjoy that a lot because it did, it helps everything I took in college helps me be the athlete I am today because it was within like physiology or anatomy, sports psychology. But I wish I would have sprinkled in now a little bit of finance classes and some business classes. Now that I'm getting into that point in my life. I wish I had a little bit of that, that side of the education. You mentioned <clears throat> the physical therapy thing. Like, Do you know more about it now than you probably ever would have originally imagined? Because I know for you, like, unfortunately, you've had to go through a few injuries in your career and having to do a lot of PT as a result of that. Like, Do you feel like you know a whole lot more about like sports injuries and going through recovery than you ever did? Yes, absolutely. Especially after the long, the longer stint I had with my TJ surgery. One, just knowing all like the terminology that's around the medical field and health field. I know that stuff. Um, I know all the structures like within the body, the muscles, bones, whatever it may be. I understand how the muscles work, how they contract and all that. Um, but yeah, as far as the protocol goes of recovering from an injury, me personally, I've kind of dialed it in. Like I, I know exactly what I need to do if I have some kind of setback. And that's what was what was awesome. My two times getting hurt, uh my the main physical therapist with the Mariners, we had such a good relationship and he understood that we could speak on, you know, a more complex level about whatever injury I was going through because he knew that I understood it on a deeper level instead of just like trying to simplify or like elementary terms, like, Hey, this is what happened. We need to do this. And then like some people would be like not understanding, but like I understood every single thing that he was talking about and why, why it was the way it is or whatever it was. Um, But it's helped out a lot. Like every, everything I took in school, the classes, they have helped me honestly be a big leaguer. For sure. 
What about the sports psychology aspect of it? I, I did read that during that long layoff you had from when you were drafted to when you actually first pitched professionally in 2022, you had a lot of downtime. And you said you spent a lot of that time reading about sports psychology. What's something you took away from that that you feel like is valuable for people to know? So when I was down, when I had all that downtime and you're hurt, you can't, you can't make any strides or any quick strides outside of your design program with your therapist for like on the physical side. So mentally I could gain all this ground within that year and a half that I was in rehab mentally, like I gain all this ground mentally and try to build the most resilient, uh, mind or mindset, um, through reading, uh, working with the mental skills team, kind of learning from them. It was just like, what can I do to prepare myself for the big leagues or not even the big leagues for just playing in the affiliate ball. And when I step on the mound for the first time, I won't be, I won't be overwhelmed or I won't be stressed out. I don't have this anxiety about how am I going to do in this on the mound? Like, do I trust myself? It was all about, building up all the confidence and just trusting your stuff. And then if things don't go your way, you don't, you don't fall and crumble under pressure or anything like that. I was like, I know right now it's, it's cliche and everyone's talking about it, but like there are like numerous benefits to ice baths and things like that. So, and that's one thing we pride ourselves on in the Mariners. Like we started doing that every single day. We do it in spring training um, we got ice tubs every single day out there and like controlling your breath, like breath work, because the only way you can control down the, the physiological system is through your breath. So if you're in a stressful situation, your, your breathing's probably going to speed up and be like shallow, shallow breaths really quick. All right. You're stressed out. Step off the mound. We can, we can control our breathing and, and lower our heightened, uh, our heightened state that we're in. So it was like th- little things like that, that you could, you can control yourself if you're in a particular situation where you're getting a little stressed or overwhelming. And, uh, that's, that's one side of the mental skills. And then the other side is <clears throat> you can't actually get on the mound and throw hard yet if you're hurt. So mental visualization, that goes a long way. That's a real thing. Like some research has backed it you know, many, many times, like if you can do thousands of mental reps and that will, that will be better than doing just, uh, how many ever like actual physical reps, because when you practice yourself, you put yourself on that mound. Like I, I personally put myself before I got there, I put myself on T-Mobile's mound. I never been there, but I kind of visualize myself based off watching the games and just visualize yourself being successful. Like you're not, you're not trying to visualize yourself throwing balls or anything like that. You're visualizing just like lighting up the strike zone, just attacking guys, going right after them. That way, when you do get to that point, it's just another, it's just another day. It's another pitch on the mound. So mental visualization is one of the key things that I use. And also doing very like doing difficult things and being comfortable being un- uncomfortable. So like the ice baths, like you don't want to do it, but if you do it and then you overcome it, 
you feel better about yourself. And everything goes- you just described, oh, I was going to say about all the visualization stuff is actually a good segue because I was going to ask, like the day you made your debut, you get the call in the bullpen, they call your name, you get done warming up, and then you trot in. Like one, it, can you take us through what that feeling is even like? And two, how do you even control your emotions in that time? Because I know every big leaguer talks about, look, like every outing's the same as the other. You have to lock in no matter if it's the fifth inning and we're down 10 or the ninth inning and we're up one, like, like and all that stuff. But I would have to imagine for your big league debut, like there is some adrenaline pumping. So how did you kind of control all that? And what were all those emotions like when you had that debut? Yeah, the emotions were definitely different, you know, from some from high A all the way up, double A to, to big leagues. Very different because you got 30 some thousand people in the stands now. But it's different. But at the same time, you're doing the same thing. So, and that's what, that's what they tell you, uh, when you get called up, especially like in, in the Mariners organization, I've, I've heard it from a couple of different guys. They do a great job of just, you know, uh, boosting you up a little bit and they tell you, Hey, go do the same exact thing you've been doing, have fun with it. And that helps a lot, especially when the, like the skipper says that to you, he's like, go have fun, be yourself. And when you can do that it makes it so much easier instead of, Hey man, like we need three outs right here. Like the difference in those two statements is like ton of stress on your shoulders. And then this one over here is like, Oh, I can just go play baseball, be myself, do exactly what I've been doing for the two months building up to this, but just on a slightly different stage. So funny you asked about the emotions. I was more anticipating how, how was I going to react when, you know, when the time came? So it was like the anxiety part. It's like, instead of just letting the moment happen, I was thinking like, how am I going to react when I walk out of that bullpen door? You know, am I going to try and make some false emotions? You know, you try to work yourself up too much because you're in this big moment. I think I just, I handle it re- really well. I, I, I think so. Um, and when I knew I might get the call that night when I was in the bullpen, and, you know, I was doing a couple of breathing things just to, you know, calm myself down. But when you get the call to go into the game, you got to get heightened up a little bit. You got to get stimulated. So at the same time, you want to you want to stay on this level. But at the same time, you do got to You know, we got to get the heart rate up. You got to get warmed up, ready to throw. Um, so I did that. Did my warm up pitches. The inning ended. And then I started walking down the, the little walkway pathway and open the door i took one big look i wanted to i did know i wanted to do this i was like i'm gonna take one big look at everything and kind of look at the the magnitude of this you know the 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 crowd and everything but once i hit the the grass my eyes went down and then it was like i'm only i got stopped by the umpire because of the darn gloves checking stuff but (laughs) other than that it was like grass i'm looking at the grass i i'm looking at the rubber i grab the ball get a feel for the ball and then it's right to uh i'm not sure if it was cal or i think it might have been tom that night but it was just like me and tom like attack right to the glove that's all i'm worried about because as soon as you you lose that tunnel vision right towards your catcher and you for some reason you might look out and get this you know dazed look and you're you're not locked in that's when things start to 
you know, go bad for you or, you know, spiral out of control. When you start, you know, you lose that focus, you start thinking about other things. But as long as you can stay locked in on what needs to happen, you know, 15 seconds in between each pitch, you got to attack, attack with whatever pitch he calls, know where you got to throw it, get the ball back. I look down, I, you know, kick the rubber or kick the dirt a little bit and then right back into, right back into the mitt or where his fingers are at or, well, we're doing the pitch comm, but I would just listen for the pitch comm. That's, it's just very repetitive. It's like, get the ball, get the sign, where am I throwing this pitch, and then go, attack it. And then same thing, back to back to back. And when you keep stacking those on top of each other, before you know it, the inning's over. And then you can, like, decompress a little bit. You get to the dog area, you're like, hey, that kind of went quicker than I thought. And then that night, people were hugging me, you know, dapping me up high fives, whatever. And then coach comes over. He's like, Hey, like you're, you're going to go out for another inning. And I'm like, okay, reel it back in. We gotta, <laughs> we gotta stay focused, not get, uh, not get wrapped up in all the, the congratulations or whatever. And so like, you know, sitting by myself, just trying to control my emotions, you know, get my breathing under control while staying I want to stay amped up just because I'm a reliever. That's how I like to be. I know some starters like to really relax on the bench. I want to relax to a certain point, but I still want to stay amped up so that I'm ready to go when I'm out there. But that was, that was kind of how I managed my emotions that day. And I think I said in the interview after the game, like it really did feel like another day um, just on the mound. Once I threw the first couple pitches, because what, once you throw the first couple pitches and I got that ground out and then maybe another out, it was, it was somewhat of a smooth sailing from there. Ty, can I also say it it helped you a little bit when you got a lot of your anxiety out earlier in the day, worrying if you were actually going to make it there on time. Is that a fair statement? You said I got my anxiety out. Yeah. Did, did you get your, a lot more of your anxiety out earlier in the day, worrying if you were actually going to make it on time? Uh, (laughs) I don't know. It might have it might have heightened it a little bit because I was like, <laughs> "Am I gonna get there in time? If how much time am I gonna have to prepare?" Because I was I was thinking to myself when I was in the airport in Dallas, it was on the delay for like two hours. I'm thinking, okay, now every minute that goes by, I need to think about what is the absolute essential things I need to do when I get to the field so that I'm ready to throw that night. And it was like. One, I got to get my jersey and, like, get my sizes and everything. I got to meet the the skipper. Got to say hey to him and talk to him for a little bit. Then I got to – I think I went to the tubs, immediately sent the tubs for a little bit, warmed up, and then did some movement prep, some other movement prep that I do before I throw. Went out and threw – I think this is around – it's getting around, like, 5 – 15 ish the game starts at like 6 6 30 so i'm out there by myself just solo dolo throwing on the field fans are kind of uh piling into the stands and then i go throw in the bullpen because i want to get a touch for the slope before i uh go into the game and that went well like did my normal stuff but when i was in the airport i was just like what do I, what do i need to do when i get there like i had to have it already like mapped out make sure i got those things done so that I didn't have any, you know, there's no excuses to not be ready, but I needed to know what I had to do to be uh, confident in myself that night. Okay, so it wasn't quite 
the level that Jared Kelnick had to deal with a year prior. Because I don't know if you ever heard this story, but when they were in Houston in the summer of 2022, they had to make a few call-ups. There might have been a few injuries. And he got recalled from Tacoma, and he showed up in Houston in like the middle of the fourth inning of a game, and they put him right in. So he didn't quite have to do that. No, I think I do remember that because they – uh yeah, they were in Houston, right? And mm-hmm. they were so far away that I think they had to pull a guy from Arkansas to fill his spot mm-hmm. for like an inning or two. Yeah, and then he came right in and just right into the lineup. <laughs> yeah. No, not was that not that was that Jack Larson? Was that right? Yeah, Jack Larson. Uh-huh. Yeah, because we were like, like Jack's going up from Double A. Like this is this is before like it really started happening often from from Arkansas. And we're like, this doesn't make any sense, and. I think it was just because, like, they needed someone there because they couldn't get Kellenic on a flight in time. Um, yeah, and then if we, I think I ended up watching that game later, and, yeah, he was in the fourth inning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was, got- that's what you have, though, in pro ball in general and in the big leagues. Like, people, you're flying on a plane. you got to be here at this time and just be ready to go no matter the circumstances. I've got a little bit of a question for you. Like, I guess it's a little bit of a trivia question for you, although you don't have to think back that far. But your first big league strikeout was against, do you remember? Uh, Roberts, Luis Roberts. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you got it. Well, there's no S in the last name, but that's that's close enough. Yeah. So um, Luis Robert is, yeah, you got him. And I was going to ask you, that was also to get out of a jam. So my follow-up to that was, I remember watching that highlight, and you were, you were fired up after that strikeout, yeah. and you had every right to be. So I was going to say, like, were you more – I'm sure you were fired up because you got out of a jam, but was there a little part of you in the back of your head as you're walking off the mound that was also like, oh, that was my first big league punch out, and that was against a really good hitter? Right, and I knew going in, I think it was just him. I faced him, I think, if I'm not mistaken. It was just one guy, and mm-hmm. I think we were down one. So we were still in it. I think it was the 11th inning, and – yeah, I start him off. I knew the plan was like slider heavy uh, through the first one and just swung right over it. And I'm like, okay, I'm much. So I tried it again, threw another one. And I think it was, I mean, all of them were like below the zone and he was just swinging out of his shoes at him. So like I just stuck with it three in a row. And then on the third one, I knew it was my first strikeout. You know, you're trying to get the first one under your belt and you never know which person it's going to be. But for it to be against him, that was. That was special because, like, I'm a lot of these guys you you grow up watching, and he was. I mean, he's arguably one of the, the stronger power hitters in the league right now, and for like to do that, it was it was it was awesome. But yeah, like I was fired up. Like I don't, I don't usually get too fired up unless it's a big situation that you got to get out of, and the emotions kind of take over. But yeah, I was one fired up for the first strikeout and so that we could stay in the game and hopefully um, drive some runs across to help us win it. Ty, since you've been in the Mariners organization, what part of your pitching repertoire has taken the biggest leap? So what, like what's resonated with you the most to make you better? I think, I think the consistency of my, my, my pitches. Um, And when I say that, I mean, the consist and the command, like the c- consistency and command of my secondary pitch, my slider, because I've I've known that that is going to be one. I mean, not exactly my ticket to the big leagues, but I know I'm a high velocity thrower. But you can't just be a high velocity thrower. You have to have one good secondary or two good secondaries. 
And it was my secondary pitch went from being <clears throat> a pretty good cuttery slider to, I mean, this past year in spring training, it went from like a pretty like average cutter slider to like a big league slider. And it had, it had a lot more depth on it. And I was able to command it way better than I ever have been. So this whole year, it was, it was just having the confidence to, to throw that pitch right over the plate, no matter who, who I was facing. I knew that if I just, you know, let the outcome be the outcome, if I threw it over the plate, don't worry about it. You know, I've done what I need to do and the rest will take care of it itself. Um, but yeah, my, my consistency with just filling up the zone with my slider is what's kind of <clears throat> made me who I am today. Okay, with all that, I know we've jumped around a little bit, but I feel like this is such a big part of your story that like, I don't want to go without mentioning this because the thing with you between learning to pitch late at Elon, not pitching that much after getting drafted between COVID, between the injury, and then this year as a whole, like as a whole, you just, you haven't pitched that much. So when you got the call after throwing what was, I think just over 20 innings between or 20 innings above like a ball to go to the show. Like, was there any part of you that was like a little bit shocked or were you just ready for the moment? I I've always believed in myself from the beginning, but I knew what was holding me back was innings. It was, and you've, you talked to anyone that was on the pitching side within the Mariners. It was, it was all about innings. Like we need to see this guy do what he's capable of doing throughout or across how many ever innings, 20, 30, 40 innings, whatever it may be. And so I knew that's what the goal was. And that's what the Mariners wanted to see from me. And that's what they wanted. uh, They expected out of me. So I remember I I broke from spring training this past year. I spoke with the pitching coordinator and, you know, they were very pleased with what they had saw in the big league games because I, I did a bunch of uh, backup pitching or the just-in-case um, fill-in pitching uh, in the big league spring training because I didn't get an invite last year. And my first inning there, like I I surprised a lot of people. Like My slider was sharp, and it was hard. And, you know, fastball velo was way up, and, it's, and it was consistently up. It wasn't fluctuating as much as the year before. And so I sat down with the pitching coordinator, and they told me they were sending me a high A, and I'm like, you know, I'm not too happy about that because I'm 26. Like I was 26 at the time. I'm still 26. I'll turn 27 in February. And as a 26 year old, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm prepared for double A or, you know, I'm prepared for the big leagues. That's, you know, that's what I believe. And I got every, every bit of what it takes to be on the big league stage, getting guys out. But what they wanted to see was, we want to see you consistently maintain that fastball velo you're at. And we want to see you be in the zone a little bit more with the fastball slider command was great. Like commands always there. I can usually fill it up. No problem, but it was maintain your velo and get the fastball strike percentage a little bit higher and then go from there. So I knew that was what I had to do. And you talk about the short span of innings I, I pitched I mean, every inning 
<clears throat> that I pitched that year, I knew what the goal was. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, all right, fill up the zone early with a slider because that's usually what I throw. And then if I'm going to throw this fastball, throw it hard and just throw it right over the plate or throw it slightly uh, elevated. And that was the game plan for me. And then, then on, it was like I started stacking on top of each other, good outing, on top of good outing, good outing, another good outing, maybe a bat. Like I had at the start, I had a couple like iffy, not so great outings. Um, and then after that, I got on a roll where it was just like lights out, lights out, lights out. And it, and then the funny thing, I didn't have as many strikeouts as you would think that I should have had for my stuff, but the people, the, the, the hitters were not hitting my stuff. Like the X velocity was not great against me. So like, <clears throat> I think that's one thing that the Mariners saw that it was going to, they can project really well if your stuff's going to play at the big league level and whether you can get outs up there right now. So they already knew with my stuff, I could get outs at that point. It just, like I said, they wanted to see me do it over a certain amount of innings and it ended up being 20, 22 innings. And like people that doubt, you know, doubt the decision to, to pull me up as early as they did. I mean, you stack me up against anybody and like, arguably I got some of the, the better stuff out there and, I think that's ultimately why they made that decision. So last thing from me, Ty, the, the, the saying is like in, in any walk of life that you need 10,000 hours to master something. And I don't know what that number is for innings pitched on the mound for you to truly master something, but with you pitching, you having pitched so few innings, are, do you still feel like you're in the, the learning stage of pitching? Like still like picking up on some things that you felt like if you had been pitching since you were, I don't know, 15, you would have gotten by now. For sure. I think I'm still I'm still learning every day. And I think we're all still learning if we're in any sport or whatever job we may be in. We're, we're always trying to continue our, our education in whatever field it may be in. And like there's things you're not going to learn about pitching that I won't learn about pitching for maybe like three years down the road, some pitcher that I meet that's been a veteran, he might say one little particular advice to me that I never thought of it that way. And it's going to make sense and resonate with me. And then I'm going to use that and be a better pitcher because of it. But I will say the past uh, four or five years, ever since I've taken on the role of being a pro pitcher, I've, I've learned so much more about pitching than I ever have just because you're surrounded by so many high level thinkers when it around pitching and we've had so many uh intellectual conversations about uh mechanics you know pitch design like different different pitches you're throwing um <clears throat> whatever it may be about pitching we've we've talked about it and that's like that's I'm talking about with players within the organization. Like, what do you think we do in the bullpen? We just talk. We talk about other stuff, but <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about pitches and like, hey, what are you doing when you when you throw this pitch right here? Like someone that has a similar repertoire as you. Like I, I was talking with the, <clears throat> a buddy of mine in high A this year because he had the similar profile as me. He was a hard-throwing righty, and he had a hard slider, but he was struggling – to really get the depth on his slider. So like it was a couple of small little cues with the fingertips of just like throw it as a fastball. And then when you get 
when the when the hand gets out in front, that's kind of when the slider happens. The harder sliders, that's when that happens. As opposed to like a sweeper or like a big moving uh, pitch, you usually start that, you know, as the arm cycles up, it's going to start back here and you're going to try and try and make that pitch move back here. It's like little things like that, that you can't, you know, you can't read that in the book. And, and it's pitching's not like uh, another topic or subject in, in uh, school that you're taking. There's not, there's not books out there on pitching. So everything you learn is usually by um, being around the sport, being around players that, are doing it or coaches that have done it in the past. And I think especially this year, um, being around great coaches, you know, big leaguers, people from different organizations that are coming in as well and giving you, you know, different insight that you've never never thought about before. That's what, that's what helps you compile all that information around pitching and then taking what's useful and applying it, within your your repertoire or whatever profile pitcher you are because there's some things that uh let's say for instance pen murphy was trying to talk to me about pitching a particular way like we're not the same pitcher but there there may be some little um thing that he can teach me that will help me but at the same time you have to realize that everyone's unique in their own individual pitcher and you just have to know that. That's all really cool. I mean, it sounds like you've learned a whole lot just throughout your journey as a whole about pitching. And, and you clearly have a very good vision about how to attack it all. I will end with this, by the way, because you mentioned, oh, we'll have some other conversations in the bullpen. We've been trying to get to the bottom of this a little bit. We had Taylor Saucedo on a couple of weeks ago and he talked about it. Did you ever uh-huh. get on and did you ever get in on was Babe Ruth real and that conversation? <laughs> I, that did come up when, when I was up there. It came up one time, and I don't know how it came up, but <laughs> I feel like I feel like Sauce Sauce is like the can throw some conspiracy theories out there, and he just kind of gets the get the juices flowing for some conversations. And I don't I don't have an opinion on that. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I guess he's real. I, that's all I would I will, all I would think, but. I would love to hear Saucedo explain to me why he's not, because I'm always down for a good conversation with Sauce. (laughs) That makes it one versus one here on this pod, because Sauce said, oh, there's no chance he's real. Basically, his argument was, which maybe there's some validity to this, that he said, well, there's only one highlight ever of him that you see, and it's of him, like, swiftly circling the bases, and otherwise there's nothing else. Nobody ever saw him play in this time period. So he's like, are they just making this up, or, or... did he actually play? So his little two senses. Well, I I could. He was like, yeah, I don't I don't think he was real. Yeah, I mean, if that's the case, then we could contemplate everything that happened, like a lot of things that happened in history, because we don't have any right. we don't have any documentation of it. But I guess you just trust the people from the past, and, and it gets passed down, and you're like, he's just too great of a you know the story's too great to not accept it. It's like this guy was just some industrial worker like nine to five job and just what it holds the record like held the record for home runs like it just sounds so bizarre that it's just like uh it's a fairy tale 
yeah, just like uh, a, a drunk and and was his whose health was terrible and yeah. and all these things and just so happened even the fact he was like really fat it was an amazing defender and all he did was like predict his own home runs. It's like, yep, <laughs> it's okay. When you put it that way, it does sound a little fishy that yeah. <laughs> this guy is in the worst physical shape of his life. He's smoking cigarettes. He's drinking. And he's working a job, and then he's he's somehow holding the record for most home runs hit. And he pitched, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and he was a really good pitcher too. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm, I may be on Sauce's side on that one. It, he could be just some mythical creature that people just made up because <laughs> it just doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> well, if if anything here, we've given the two of you something to talk about the next time you see each other. So at least there's that. Yeah. But seriously, Ty, this, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I definitely have to bring that back up to him when I see him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 100%. Well, seriously, Ty, this has been a blast. We've had a bunch of fun talking with you. We've really enjoyed getting to hear a little bit more about your story. And we hope we can do it again soon because we've really enjoyed getting to hear about it all. Yes, sir. I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, it's good to see you again. And uh, hopefully to see you soon. Awesome, 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 awesome interview with Ty Adcock. We really appreciate him spending a a good bit of his time with us. And man, just learned so much about him, his career, his friendship, his becoming a pitcher. I mean, really just covered all the bases with him. Truly awesome that he got to spend some time with us here on the podcast. Before we wrap up, a word from BetterHelp. Is something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? Regardless, if you have a clinical mental health issue like depression or anxiety, or if you're just a human who lives in this world who's going through a hard time, therapy can give you the tools to approach your life in a very different way. And that's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and more accessible. And this is an important mission because finding a therapist can be really hard, especially when you're limited to options in your area. BetterHelp is a platform that makes finding a therapist easier because it's online, it's remote, and by filling out a few questions, BetterHelp can match you with a professional therapist in as little as a few days. It's easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist. There's a link in our description. It's betterhelp.com slash marine layer pod. That's better H-E-L-P.com slash marine layer pod. Clicking that link helps support this podcast, but also gets you 10% off your first month of BetterHelp so you can connect with a therapist and see if it helps you. So if you're struggling, consider online therapy with BetterHelp. Click the link in the description or visit betterhelp.com slash marine layer pod. Yeah, Ty Adcock, Lyle, officially our guy. Oh, he's our guy. Everybody named Ty in the Mariners organization seems to be our guy. We're big Ty Pete fans. Now we're big Ty Adcock fans. Maybe it's something about the namesake, but you want to talk about guys we're going to be rooting for. Yeah, You can chalk those two up as two of them because not only was Ty an awesome storyteller, but I mean, people forget because he got injured and, and you know, it was it was about midseason that he got injured, but he had some really good innings out of the Mariners bullpen last year, and there's no reason he can't make some adjustments in 24, come back better than ever, and play a real role in the bullpen, right? Yeah, he's his stuff is uh, his stuff is pretty good. Ninety six does not grow on trees, I'll tell you that much. And a one guy to go on top of ninety six makes it all that much better. We can't wait to see what Ty's got in store next year. We're looking forward to it. All right. 
That'll just about wrap up this edition of the Marine Layer Podcast. You guys know the drill. If you want to listen to the full-form podcast, you can do so wherever you get your audio side of the pod. Make sure to follow the show, download our episodes, leave us a five-star review. We can't stress it enough, but those reviews and downloads help us out a ton. Also, going over to YouTube to like, comment, and subscribe helps us out as well. You want to watch the video side of the podcast, you can do it over there. And follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube shorts at Marine Layer Pod. That's TJ. I'm Lyle. As always, we thank you guys for tuning in. Talk to you soon.